All right. Good morning. Um, thank you all for being here today. Um, it's been great so far to be here. And um, I put, let's see, I don't know how this works, Ryan. Am I supposed to click it onto the screen? All right. So um, I, I may have been a little too ambitious. And um, I have 25 slides this morning. <laughs> I know. Pastor John's like, I only do like four or five. Like, what's going on here? Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I got so caught up in making slides and, and having fun with it that I, I prepared it as if I was teaching my Bible class. And then I stopped and I'm like, holy smokes, this is... So I promise you, it's really only like a normal amount of notes that I have. So we'll fly through them, I hope. And uh, we'll get done at a reasonable... Listen, the Eagles aren't on until four. So we have plenty of time today, all right? Um, does anybody know the name Earl Pitts? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, the Wake Up America guy. It's a, a character uh, by someone named Gary Burbank. And uh, if you go to Wikipedia and you look him up, it says Earl Pitts. He's a full-blooded redneck that gives a social, comment, a social commentary on everything from politics to family and friends. And I remember when I was younger and I would work with my dad in his shop and uh, we would hang out. He would listen to talk radio and he would come on and he would always start with something. You know what makes me sick? It just, it makes me so sick. It wants me to, I, I, I want to trim my nose hairs with a weed whacker. And then he like continues on this like social like rant and political rant about kids getting off the school bus and coffee and being in special little cups. And, and then he'd finish and he'd say, wake up, America. Well, this morning, what I want to talk about is something that I, I've been reading and, and talking with the kids about here at school and, and in our youth group. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul kind of has the same similar dialogue. And if you kind of just a rough outline of chapter 5, if you go down, he talks about becoming an imitator of God. And then he talks about walking in love. And then he talks about removing impurity and a laundry list of sins. And then he warns us about empty words and false teaching and and empty religion. And then he gets to this verse, uh, this portion in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, But all things become visible. When they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. And for this reason it says, Awake sleeper and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are this morning. And we thank you for the opportunity to be here and to to learn about you and and just to kind of see how we can grow closer to you and the impact that, that you have in our lives. And Lord, sometimes we look at it as the impact that we have on you, and it's completely the opposite. Lord, I pray that you would help us to wake up to the reality that there is uh, an enemy at work, but there is also a hero at work, Lord, and that we can stand victorious because of what you've given us. Lord, I just ask that you uh, open our ears and hearts for what you have this morning. Uh, Lord, that you would just help me to speak clearly. Uh, help us to just stay awake and, and just be aware of your presence this morning. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. So I, I like to think that where we are right now in our political climate, our social climate, there's a lot of change happening. There's a lot of discussion about immorality and morality, what's right, what's wrong, who sets it, who's in charge of it, who's responsible, where does it come from? And realistically, I think sometimes we check out. 
Uh, especially as Christians, we, we get this mindset that well, that doesn't really, you know, this is what the Bible says and this is where we're going to leave it. And we really kind of fall off and, and take a little bit of a nap. And this morning, I don't know, I, I know in my personal life myself, I know that I fall into this category of falling asleep. And First Peter 5.8 warns us, he says, you're our enemy. He says, be of sober spirit. This is really difficult. I have a lot of, this is, wow. You're good. Yeah. First Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And, you know, Pastor had up on the screen a couple weeks back the, the picture of, of the devil, right? The, the red suit and the pointy ears and the tail and the pitchfork. And, you know, we've characterized it as such. And sometimes we really, truly forget that there really is an enemy out there. And we, we pass it off as a, as a cartoon character. But the truth of the matter is our enemy is real. Ezekiel talks about our enemy. And he says this in chapter 28, verse 11 through 12. And we'll continue on. It says, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord, God, you had the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis, the lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The son of... uh, Sorry. Did I miss the slide? I did. I'm so sorry. Did I read that? Last line. Yeah, see, it cuts off at the bottom. All right, sorry. I'm like, what is it? I'm trying. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. They were prepared. Some of the things that we forget is that Satan is a created being. Not only was he a created being, but these verses tell us that we see here, he had the seal of perfection. He is full of wisdom and he's perfect in beauty. He's a smart dude. He's got us figured out. Not only that, but it talks about how he was every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond. All of these beautiful exotic stones that covered him. He's a beautiful creature. And some of these things lull us into losing a little bit of respect for him. And even says, the workmanship of your settings and sockets, that could be translated as tambourines, flutes, musical instruments. He had a purpose. It was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. And Isaiah 14, 11 says, your pomp and the music of your hearts have been brought down to Sheol. He was created with great talent, great ability, created with a purpose. Sounds similar to us. Because we have been created with a purpose. We have been created with a reason. We have a decision. We have this wisdom that we rely on a little bit too much sometimes and it gets us in trouble. But when it comes to recognizing the enemy and seeing who he is for what he is, sometimes we're blinded by it. And we're completely checked out because what I'm looking for is a lion that's standing across the field and he's crouched down. And I'm looking for danger. And I'm looking for a little man in a red suit who's like chasing me around and trying to tear me down. And what I completely miss out on is the subtlety of it. The beauty of it. The wisdom of it. Because our enemy is just that. He's a beautiful creature. 
He's a smart creature. He has a purpose. He has a goal. And his goal is to tear us down. His goal is to destroy us. And he does so in a very specific way. John, 1 John 2.16 talks about his approach. And it says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And I've talked about this before. Pastor talks about it. Derek has talked about it. We have three things that he primarily uses. We talk about the lust of the flesh and its desires that, that please us. It's what we strive after, our senses, the, the body, the lust of the eyes. And we look, it's the things that we desire. It's the things that we want. And then he also uses this, the pride of life, being driven by what others think about us. And you can add to that having a distorted sense or view of who and what you are. And sometimes we have a mindset that maybe we don't give in to these fleshy desires. I'm, I'm, I'm not there. I'm good. Maybe I don't covet. I don't look out. But when it hits the pride of life, maybe that hits home to me. Because I'll tell you, and that's what hits home to me. Well, what do they think about me? Who cares? Well, what about this? And what about that? And what if I'm being mistreated? Now, yeah, sometimes I get jealous. I look at nice cars and I go, I don't know what it does, but it looks cool. We went to Florida and we're driving down the highway and these cars go zooming past us. I'm like, that's a Ferrari. That's all I know about it. It looks cool and it goes fast. I can't tell you what's in it. Can't tell you why. I just know it goes fast. And I want it. But that doesn't bother me as much. That's, that's kind of lower on the scale. But where I find myself trying to figure out how can I overcome the enemy, where is he attacking me, it's that pride. It's continually wondering, am I, am I making the right, how does my wife view me? What do my kids think? What does my boss think? What do, what do my students think? I want, I want to be the cool teacher. Who doesn't? Right? If you're a teacher, where's, where's Kate? She said, yeah, see, you want to be the cool teacher, right? Yeah. You are the cool teacher. Hey, listen. That's it. But this is, listen, this, this stuff right here, and this isn't really where I want to pause this morning. It's just kind of by way of intro to kind of set up the second half of this, is, is looking at his approach. And this is nothing new. In Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And then he says, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And here we have two distinct approaches that he uses every time. And this is where we fall into trouble. is because he uses distortion. Is this what, really what God said? Is that what God said? And then deceit. You won't die. I just straight out lied to him. You won't die. And then he uses this imitation. You will be like God. And these are the tools that he still uses today, and they're still active all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. These are the same things he uses. How do these impact us with, with the, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? They all bleed into each other. 
And not much has changed. Does the Bible really tell you you should do this? Does the Bible... I had a student ask me the other day, Mr. Strait, what does the Bible specifically say about abortion? It's a really good question. What does the Bible specifically say about this? Because if it doesn't specifically address it, I guess it's okay to do. No? That's not right. Or... Can it be like this? Can it be like this? Can we have both? Can it be something that looks good? I don't know about you guys, but when we talk about like this whole imitation thing, I always tell the kids, there's a distinct difference between Lucky Charms and Magic Stars. <laughs> there is. I grew up eating Magic Stars. I didn't know about Lucky Charms until I was older. And then someone had them. I'm like, what are these cheap things? And I ate them. And I was like, whoa, this is the real deal. Like... These are legit. But we can understand why is the imitation so appealing? Well, the magic stars are cheap, man. They taste all right. They smell all right. It's close enough. It's acceptable. It looks good. This doesn't change. This is the impact here. This is the lust of the flesh. He lies to her. What is Eve? Eve saw the fruit. She saw it was good. It looks good. She saw, I'm sorry, she saw it was good for food. This can sustain me. This can satisfy flesh. She saw that it looked good. Maybe it was an apple, bright red. My kids brought home apples from the orchard, and they polished them up, and one was bright and shiny. I was like, man, I don't really like apples. Don't tell them. They were really excited. Like, Daddy, look what we brought you. I was like, yay. (laughs) Two bags of apples sitting on my counter. If you want some, I'll bring them next week. They're probably still good. So, but it was a delight to the eyes. It looked good. And then there's this imitation to it. Because, oh, man, this, this is quick. Sorry. I'm so sorry. This imitation. He says, you know what? You'll also be like God. Who wants to be like God in here? Yeah, so do I. Yeah, you know what happens? I say, you know, I know better than you, God. I've been doing this for, you know, it's 18 years. I know what I'm doing. It's a, it, it happens. We want to be in control. We want to be the ones who are making the decisions. And we see the impact again. Oh, we already went through this. I'm sorry. The lust of the flesh is good for food. Delight to the eyes. Make one wise. This is the same approach that Satan uses in the New Testament as well when he tests Christ. 40 days, he goes out and he fasts. And you're familiar with the story. If you want to read it, you can find it in Matthew chapter 4. 40 days, he comes to Christ and he does the same thing. You look hungry. You should eat. Well, are you really the Son of God? Because if you really are the Son of God, you could throw yourself off this building and the angels will protect you. Is that really who you say you are? And he does the same thing. Look at all this stuff. Look at all these mountains. Look at all these cities. Look at all these... This could all be yours. Don't you want it? The only difference... And this temptation is Satan shows up at his weakest point. You know when else he shows up at the weakest point? When we're trying to figure out life. When we're trying to see, are we truly doing what God has called us to do? And sometimes we have weak points that are not something we would view as a weak point. Because I'm not tired, I'm not hungry, I'm not sick, I'm good, I'm healthy. And then we just completely gloss over the fact that we are where we are. I like watching football. Most of you like watching football. You see, like, the team's up by, like, you know, 
four or five touchdowns. And then they do the kickoff, and they're all just kind of jogging down the field. And the guy kicks the ball, and he runs it all the way back. And what happened? They weren't paying attention. They were satisfied knowing, hey, we got a four-touchdown lead. We don't have to really exert ourselves. And all of a sudden, someone's streaking down the sideline. They're going, catch this guy. We're lulled into sleep. We're lulled into thinking, hey, we've arrived. Harmony's doing great now. We've got 77 people showing up at our uh, food pantry. And that's awesome. That is an amazing thought. It's a need that this community has, that our county has, that just the, the Montgomery, Middletown, Newburgh, this area, there's not that many food pantries. And you can ask the, the people that work in the food pantry. Other food pantries in the area, they're closing pretty rapidly. So it's, it's awesome, and it's an essential, it's becoming an essential part of our fabric. But we can't stop there and just go, hey, 77 people showed up at our Harvest Festival. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but are they here? Did someone reach out to them and say, hey, you know, Sunday, come on in. Hey, let me show you what it means to be a disciple. Hey, let me give you something a little bit more than food. Let me give you something that's going to satisfy you for the rest of your life. And here's this verse in Isaiah. It says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. Our light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And John 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I wonder how often I find myself living in darkness. And not truly comprehending what God is revealing to me. And not truly understanding what comes next. And not truly understanding how my decisions in my family impact my decisions in my church. How it impact the decisions that we make inside our community. We can overcome this issues, these issues. Sorry. We can overcome this lust of the flesh. We can overcome this pride of life. And it's real simple. John, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is more than just saying, don't love the world. This is a letter that's written to a group of people, to a group of believers, that not only did they love the world, they had it so out of whack their love was off, their compassion was off, their service was off, their commitment was off. This isn't John politely saying, hey, don't do that. He's saying, stop loving the world. Stop it. It's like this with my kids. I do the same thing. I say, don't jump on the couch, kiddo. You're going to hurt yourself. And I don't, don't, don't do that. Over and over and over again. And finally, I got to stop, stop, stop jumping on the couch. Stop. And we say, oh man, dad's no fun. He's no fun. He just wants me to stop. He doesn't want me to jump on the... I don't want you to jump on the couch because I don't want you to fall off and crack your head on the coffee table. I don't want to put rules into your life to stop you, Keyshawn, from having fun. I want to protect you. I want you to be able to enjoy life, but I don't want you to enjoy it at the expense of your safety, your health, and your well-being, whether it's physical or it's spiritual. In this case, we're going to talk about our spiritual well-being. Because there are rules in place. There are commandments in place. There are things that God says, listen, this is what I need you to do. This is what I want you to do. And we go, yeah, okay. That's that's good for Pastor John. 
It's good for Derek. It's good for Tim. It's good for this person. But it's not for me. See, this is a call to reject the things that are not leading us toward God. This is a call that are to reject the things that are not pushing us in truth, in justice, in righteousness. And it's not just the, hey, don't love the world, don't listen to rock music, and don't do this, and don't dress like that. This is, don't follow after what the world says is acceptable. Don't pursue that. Don't let that be your focus. Don't let that be what drives you. Because when that happens, that's when we're falling back into the focus on the enemy. It says, hey, look, this is way better. It's way more fun to sin. I say it all the time. Sin is fun, man. It's great. You say, you're not supposed to say that. Well, if you don't agree, I'm sorry. I would probably venture to say you're lying to yourself. Because sin is fun. It's gratifying. It's satisfying. We like to do it. If we didn't, we wouldn't do it. And we do it because, hey, this is what becomes our focus. This is what drives us. See, by exposing sin, by exposing the the, the lies, the hatred, the unrighteousness, not only do we look at it, but it requires us to put a label on it. And then when we put a label on something that's wrong, then we have to make a decision. Am I going to continue to do this? Or am I going to live differently? Am I going to live in truth to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it? To him, it's sin. See, we expose this. We, 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 we love God. We, we follow after him. We, we pursue his righteousness. And, and we start labeling all these things in our life. This is right. This is wrong. This is right. This is wrong. And then we have to make a decision. Are we going to change our mindset? Are we going to change our behavior? Are we going to change our attitude? Are we going to do something different? Or are we just going to keep going around this stupid, vicious circle? Because that's really what we do. We're ignorant to it. We're ignorant to the effects of sin. We're ignorant to the hold that it has on our life. And we're not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about, like, you know, we're, we're crazy and we do... No, we've we missed the mark. Our attitude is off. Our hearts are off. Our behavior is off. And this isn't just me saying this is all you guys. This is me in my life. And I'm driving home last night talking to my wife. And I'm going, man, I'm, I'm so close. I'm like on this line of being angry and bitter. And I want justice. And I want to stand up for me. And I want to do this. And I want to do that. And I had to stop. And she's like, you know, that sounds like pride. You know, I hear it when someone says, well, I've, I've been here for 40 years. Awesome. That's great. I've been here for three. I, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. I've, okay. So if Jesus came back and he said, change this, well, Jesus, you know, we've, I've been here for 40 years. And, uh, yeah. I, we laugh and we think it's kind of funny, but that's, that's our pride going, yeah, I know, I know what's best. I don't have to listen to that guy. I don't have to listen to him. I don't have to listen to you. I I know what's best. See, when we label it, we have to take care of it. When we do this, there are a couple of things that begin to bleed into our character. And this is kind of where the steps fall into place. And 
sorry, self-examination. Self-examination requires us. If we're going to live in truth, it requires self-examination. It requires us to stop and look beneath the surface and scrutinize. And really kind of clean up. There's a difference between Tim cleanup and Ashley cleanup. And if you're married, Keyshawn, you're soon going to be married. I'm going to warn you right now. There's a difference between Keyshawn cleanup and Sarah cleanup. So when she says, hey, we've got to clean the house. Someone's coming over. I do it all the time. I'm like, did you clean? I'm like, yeah, look, I did this, this, but did you dust? Why would I dust? Who dusts? But she has a different opinion of what clean is. And that's awesome because I'm just like, you know, I need, I, I'm a neatener. You know what that means? I don't clean the mess. I just make it neat. I just stack it up. Did you put those away? No, but they're neat. Maybe someone's going to want to read that Bon Appetit magazine from last year. I don't know. It's still there. It's just, it's neat. But you know what? That's what we do. We take our mess. We take our sin. We take what's keeping us from serving God. We keep what's keeping our church from moving forward. And instead of getting rid of it and cleaning it out, we just put a little neat little pile here because I'm going to come back to it later and I'm going to want to reread another 50 ways to make a turkey. We're not. Self-examination, it does. It requires us to look inside. There's a um, uh, Tozer quote, and this is what he says. A Pharisee is hard on others, and he's easy on himself. But a spiritual man is easy on others and hard on himself. You see, we want to put qualifications and requirements on other people before we're willing to stop and look at it and say... A, B, and C needs to happen to me so I can get clean. This is so I can serve, so that I can make sure that I'm not falling prey to the lust of the flesh or giving in to my pride and giving in to this imitation of Christ and this imitation of church. That when, when lies and something that's distorted comes my way, I can look at it and go, you know what, this, this doesn't sit well with my spirit. But in order for that to happen, our spirit has to be knitted with God. In order for that to happen, we really have to take the time to clean out, to do this self-examination. We also have, not only do we clean up, but we got to start evaluating our lives from God's standard, from, from the viewpoint of God's standards. What the Bible says, how it measures up, what we're taught, truth. I can tell you as much as I want what my standards are, you can tell me what your standards are, but ultimately, if, if they're not okay with what God's standards are, they shouldn't matter. In fact, we get so caught up into this that this becomes our religion, this becomes our church, this becomes who we are. Well, it doesn't look this way, it doesn't smell this way, it doesn't taste this way, it doesn't, you know, it's not like Mama used to make it. But that's... <laughs> Who's, who's in charge? Who's setting our moral compass? Who's, whose ideals are we searching after? The Bible says be doers of the word, not just hearers only. So when we read through this, uh, if you read through James chapter 4 and you read all of it, it goes on this laundry list of, of all these things about having purity and living in peace and being submissive to each other and understanding mercy and we look at that and go, that's, that's not for me, that's for the pastor. That's not for me, that's for this person. That's not for me, that's for you. No, 
It's for us. Evaluating. Is, is my mindset measured up to God's? Where do I stand? Where do we stand? Where do you stand when it comes to God's standards? The next living in truth requires us to do is change. So we have this idea of self-examination, and then when we kind of start labeling things and putting tags, this is, this is questionable, this is not, this is good, this is really bad, and then we start measuring up the standards, then we have to decide to make that change. Part of doing what's right requires making a change. Not only that, oh, sorry, I don't know how you do this. <laughs> I really don't. Part of doing what is right requires us to make a change. It requires repentance. And when we talk about repentance, it's more than just saying, I'm sorry. You've got kids, you've seen this play out. Avery comes running through the room. Taryn hit me! All right. Taryn, why'd you hit your sister? Well, she pulled my hair. Did you say sorry? Sorry, Avery. It's what she... (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah, or, or Avery, apologize to Taryn. Sorry, Taryn. And she turns around, she punches her in the head again. <laughs> I'm like, you're like, your kids do that? Yeah, my kids do that. I'm telling you, they're demons. They have you fooled. I love them, but they're trouble. And this is what they do. They fight each other and, and they hurt each other's feelings and they kick each other in the stomach and they pull each other's hair. And then when you try to get them to apologize, they're like, sorry. And then they walk off and storm away. And two seconds later, they're back at it again. There's no repentance there. There's no sorry. There's no, I don't mean it. It's, I'm sorry your feelings are hurt. Oh. But we do this to God because God says, look, get this cleaned up, change this, go ahead and do this. God, I'm so sorry. I, uh, you know, I, I failed, I made a mistake, and then I turned around and went right back to it. And this is in our nature. And we make these little mini covenant promises with God, right? God, if you deliver me from this, if you help me clean this area, I promise you I will never do it again. Not only that, God, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to be in church every Sunday. And I will also start reading my Bible more, and I'll pray at least twice a day. I just need your help in this one situation. And then what? We backslide. We go right back to it, and then a week later we make the same prayer. We confess the same hard attitude, and cleanse me of my pride, and help me to get along with this person, and help us to do this. God, we're a church on our knees until we get into the parking lot. Because ultimately, we don't view God as the Lord of our life. He's just the Lord of our church. That's it. And what goes on outside of those walls doesn't apply to me because he's just here. That's, I have a problem with that. And I, I see it in my students. I see it in the teens. I see it here. I see it in my life. Because I'm not willing to say all the time, yes, you know what, God? You are not only the Lord here. You're the Lord at my house. You're the Lord in my car. You're the Lord when someone cuts me off. You're the Lord when someone mistreats me out in public. You're the Lord when this happens. <sighs> He's the Lord of all. Do the will of God. The world is passing away and also it's lost. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Psalm 40, 6 and 8, I'll put that up in a second. But understanding the will of God, doing the will of God, is a personal choice. It's a personal choice that each of us have to make on a daily continual basis. And I'm going to read a a Tozer quote here. And this is what he says. He says, No act 
No act that is done voluntarily is an abrogation of the freedom of will. If a man chooses the will of God, he is not denying, but exercising his right of choice. What he is doing is admitting that he is not good enough to desire the highest choice, nor is he wise enough to make it. And he is, for that reason, asking another who is both wise and good to make his choice for him. And for fallen man, this is the ultimate use he should make of his freedom of will. Tennyson saw this and wrote of Christ, Thou seemest human and divine, the highest, holiest manhood. Thou, our wills are ours, we know not how. Our wills are ours to make them thine. This is a lot of sound doctrine in these words. Our wills are ours to make them thine. The secret of saintliness is not the destruction of the will, but the submergence of it in the will of God. The true saint is one who acknowledges that he possesses from God the gift of freedom. He knows that he will never be cudge-led into obedience, nor weed-led like a petulant child into doing the will of God. He knows that these methods are unworthy, both of God and of his own soul. He knows he is free to make any choice he will, and with that knowledge, he chooses forever the blessed will of God. I I like to shrink this down for my students, and I tell them, there's a class that we do, it's called Faith and Discipleship, and we talk about what is faith, what is belief, what is truth, what is trust, Right, Raina? What is commitment? How these all play out. And we do a lot of discussion. I ask them, what do you think? What do you think the Bible says about this? Or what do you think about this? What do you believe about this? And I've told them all, you know what? Don't don't tell me what Mr. Strait wants to hear. Because I don't care. I do. He doesn't care what. What I'm saying is, if you're just trying to get the right answer because you want Mr. Strait to say, hey, yeah, that's the right answer. If you don't believe it, you got it wrong. I'd rather talk to an entire class full of kids who go, you know what, Mr. Strait, this Christianity thing is bogus. There's, you know what, this whole God thing, I don't get it. I don't understand. You know what? Church is boring. Why? Because at least they're at a point where they recognize that there's a difference. Instead of having a group of kids, oh, I love going to church, Mr. Strait. It's my favorite thing. Don't lie to me. I know that's not true, because sometimes I wake up and I'm like, can we just like not go today? And if I'm the only person in this room that has ever rolled over to their wife or to someone else and said, can we just, no, I got a headache, can't we just like, oh, Taryn's, Taryn, you know, she might have a fever. <laughs> she was outside all day yesterday, it's kind of cool out, she's got a sore throat, why don't we just stay home today? Why? Because, hey, it happens. We fall into these ruts. We're lulled to sleep. We have not given ourselves over to the will of God. It's not bleeding into our lives. It's not becoming who we are. Sacrifice, meal offering, you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. You know, I could be wrong. Pastor, you can correct me. Psalm 40, that's a Moses psalm, isn't it? I think. I don't remember. I just think it's amazing. Moses, the guy who was given the law, writes this down. God doesn't care about your offering. He doesn't care about your sacrifice. He doesn't care about what boxes you check. He cares about what your heart says. 
And I can come in here, and I can pretend, and I can say, hey, look at how special I am. But guess what? The will of God is so far from my heart that everything that I'm offering to God smells nasty. And it's disgusting. And it's not acceptable. And this is where we have to kind of do business to find out where we're at. It's where we have to see. When we immerse ourselves into Scripture, when we get plugged into a small group, when we are willing to commit to the leadership that has been given to this church in the form of pastor or Sunday school teachers or youth workers, then we can start to see, God, how are you building into my life? What are these building blocks? What are these foundations? How can I do your will? Like I said, these three things change our lifestyle. It bleeds into me, and it bleeds into my wife, and it bleeds into my kids, and it bleeds into my school, and it bleeds into my church. Do you know what happens if I don't do these three things? It bleeds into my wife, and it bleeds into my kids, and it bleeds into my church, and it bleeds into my school. And then I'm left going, well, how come, what the, no, no, no. Why? Because I, I can't do it, or I'm not willing to do it. And whatever excuse we have, hey, it's your excuse. I have mine, you have yours, pastor has his, Derek has his. We all have our excuses. Mike's got his, he forgets to turn the volume up. They're there. Whatever the excuse is, whatever the reason is, we have these excuses and we look at it and go, it's just, you know what, my will, not thine, but mine. And it's backwards. It's flawed. 33 people for prayer meeting last week. Can we beat that today? Is it because, you know, we feel we just got to show up. If you're going to come, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, Pastor. Don't say things like that. If the whole purpose of showing up, I just want to be accounted among the numbers. Stay home. Pray at home. If your heart's in it, if it's truly because you want to see God make a change in this building and God make a change in your life, then come on, be committed, do something. There's a difference between being a believing Christian and a committed Christian. Because you can believe something all you want, but until you take that step and make a commitment to it, it means nothing. It's like that tightrope walker. Blondin, what's his name? The tightrope walker across. We did this in class the other day, right? Blondin, Blondin. Some French guy did a tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. And then he did it, came back, and said, Who thinks I could do it again? Oh, yeah, we do. He's awesome. Who wants to come out and jump on my back? Who, who thinks I could do it with someone on my back? Yeah, that would be so cool. Who's going to come jump on my back? Nobody. The reading we did, it does say that one person said, I believe you could do it. And he jumps out. Maybe it was a plant. Maybe it was something. But he got on his back. He walked across and came back. That's us. Hey, we believe it. Is God going to do something in this church? Yeah, it's going to do something awesome. Is God going to change? Yeah, he's going to change our lives. Yeah, we're going to, man, harmony on the map. How committed are we to it? Mm, he can do it. You could do it. It's got to be us. It's got to be on us to, to love God, to live in truth, to do his will. Listen, either God is Lord of all or he's Lord of none. And that's to each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that we have this opportunity to to be here, to be in your house this morning. Lord, thank you for helping me to just kind of stumble through this. Lord, I pray that something catches our lives, something helps us to to get a fire going inside of us, that we would be willing to, to, to love you, 
to walk in truth, Lord, to commit to doing your will, that we would change, that we would evaluate, that we would scrutinize every aspect of our life, Lord, that we would be willing to do what you've called us to do. Lord, that uh, we would recognize our purpose in being created, that we would not give in to the, 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 the lusts that, that consume our lives. Lord, that we would be able to recognize when the enemy is really attacking. We would be able to see through the imitation, through the distortion, through the lies, Lord, that, that we could see you more and more. Lord, that we could become like you. Help us to love. Help us to be united. Lord, we thank you again for who you are. We ask that you bless this time in your name. Amen.